Hello and welcome to this podcast of Neonatal Conversations. This podcast has been created to improve understanding for neonatal and paediatric trainees, nursing and medical colleagues, and anyone who is interested in becoming more familiar with our boutique area of medicine. My name is Kath Carmo, and I am a neonatal intensive care specialist in Sydney, Australia. My practice is in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care and in neonatal retrieval as the Deputy Director of NETS New South Wales. Today my conversation is with Associate Professor Gordon Thomas, who is a paediatric general and transplant surgeon and the head of surgery at the Children's Hospital at Westmead. Today we are going to discuss green vomit, holes in the diaphragm and paediatric transplant surgery to better understand how we might approach these problems in retrieval and in the neonatal nursery. Gordon grew up in India and went to boarding school in the Himalayas before attending medical school at the Christian Medical College in Vellore, India. In 2002, he came to work in the surgical department at the Children's Hospital at Westmead under the guidance of Dr. Albert Shun, Australia's first paediatric liver transplant surgeon. Gordon then did a transplant fellowship in Miami in the USA under the guidance of Dr. Andy Zarkas a very busy program which included liver, kidney, pancreas and small bowel transplant. Gordon has been working back in Sydney since 2007 and is now our lead in general and transplant surgery. So welcome Gordon. It's a pleasure to be here Kat. Great, so you've had a very global upbringing really haven't you and your path to Australia and your role here has um, been a long one. How did, how did you first come to medicine and then surgery? What's been your motivation? Thank you, Kat. That's an interesting question. I became fascinated with medicine at the age of 15, I remember, after reading this wonderful book by A.J. Cronin called The Citadel. In fact, the story I remember most vividly is something that you'd be interested in. In the story, the doctor's working as a GP in the mines. He delivers a baby. The baby's blue. Uh, and won't breathe. So what he does, if I remember correctly, is he dunks the baby in cold water, holds it, up, holds him upside down, and gives him a resounding light in the back. And lo and behold, there's that welcome cry. So that really fascinated me and sort of stimulated my interest in medicine and made me want to become a doctor. We hope the baby had SVT and there was a, there was need for dunking the baby in cold water. Probably <laughs> no. <laughs> so. Yeah, the, to, um, to continue the story, admission into medical school was very competitive, competitive in those days. And uh, honestly, I didn't really think I stood a chance. But I was fortunate enough to gain admission into the medical school in Vellore, which was actually a very wonderful experience for me. Uh, it was very special. Uh, I finished medicine at the age of 24, um, got married soon after, and newly married, my wife Susanna and I, worked for two years in a very busy remote mission hospital. It was there that I discovered that surgery came naturally to me, and I really enjoyed it. I did a lot of surgery in those two years. I chose pediatric surgery mostly because I like the pediatric surgeons. They are generally a nice approach. <laughs> and Susanna's a doctor too, of course. She's a doctor too, yeah. yeah. And then it was much later in 2002, that I decided to mention to transplant, and that's been now actually my first lab, and I've immensely enjoyed it. Yeah. So, Gordon, just 
moving on to then to the topics that we want to talk about in this podcast. A big topic at the moment for us in retrieval and in the neonatal intensive care unit is the yellowish-green or the bilious vomit in a term baby. And we all know it can be an ominous sign for a newborn. But can you explain to us and the listeners, why does malrotation occur and why is it more common in certain babies? Thanks, Kat. Um, Yes, we are always extremely worried about bilious vomiting in neonate. Uh, it can be the only symptom of malrotation in volvulus. So it's really important to be aware of malrotation in volvulus, as failure to recognize it can, as you know, lead to the catastrophic loss of almost the entire length of the small bowel, and that's often a death sentence for the poor baby. So to understand why it happens, we need to go back to embryology and the developing intestine in the developing fetus. So what happens in utero is that the developing intestine goes through a process of prolapsing out of the abdomen and then coming back into it and getting embedded or anchored in a very predictable way. And that anchoring is what prevents it from twisting on itself uh, and cutting off its own blood supply. So the failure to fix or anchor is called a non-fixation or what we call malrotation and the twisting is called volvulus. So given that risk, do you think that we should be treating all bilious vomiting as an emergency until contrast has ruled it out? Yes, I think so. The problem is that babies look really well until the bowel is completely dead and then it's too late to do anything about it. And then you know the outcome is really generally very poor. And there are two common errors that clinicians make when they assess a baby with bilious vomiting and they don't take it seriously. Uh, One is, as I said, they look well. And the other is that the abdomen is not distended. So for most clinicians, they they equate bowel obstruction with a very sick-looking patient having a distended abdomen. In volvulus and malrotation, the obstruction is really very proximal. It's at the duodenal level. So the abdomen is paradoxically very scaphoid. So so this is a question that you will ask. So is all bilious vomiting in a neonate malrotation? So the answer is no. But from best estimates, we know that it's only 1 in 10 babies with bilious vomiting that have the time-critical surgical problem like volvulus. However, to save 1 out of 10, it seems very reasonable to treat them all as malrotation Uh, and as an emergency until we rule it out. So it's much safer to do it that way, and it's very easily diagnosed through a contrast study. The other thing that I'd like to say is that, you know, if you look at all children with malnutrition, uh, 60% of them will present in the first 30 days of life. So your your cohort of children. So most of malnutrition present with bilious vomiting in the first 60 days, and 80% in the first year. So the younger they are, the more likely a bilious vomit represents a malnutrition volvulus. Therefore, a bilious vomit in a neonate is much more ominous than one in a 10-year-old. So having said that, any patient, any child with bilious vomiting needs to be, um, you know, taken seriously. It's just that it's much more ominous in your group of patients in neonates. Mm. So I know you said it's easy to rule out... um 
with a contrast study, but I'm often asked why don't we do the contrast study in all hospitals? And my understanding from our most experienced paediatric radiologists is that it's actually very difficult to rule out malrotation on the contrast study. It's quite easy to rule in, but it's far more difficult to rule out. I mean, and anecdotally, we have seen cases where the radiologist was unsure and the surgeon has taken the baby to theatre to confirm the malrotation at laparotomy. So the message is that this is fairly easy to rule in radiologically, but it takes much more skill and experience from the radiologist to be able to rule it out. And so doing the contrast study where there's access to a paediatric surgeon is the ideal. Yes. Yep. So just to explore that a little further, we are often asked how long after the volvulus occurs is the ischemia irreversible? So I really don't know the answer to that, Kath. I think it really depends on the degree of twisting that's occurred. We also know that the bowel can very easily twist and untwist. So even though the child looks well after a bilious vomiting, if there's a history of bilious vomiting, we have to assume that there's been a twist. But if the child, if but if ischemia has set in, the child will usually be acidotic and also have elevated lactates. It just suffice it to say that it's best not to be complacent about it and it's best to investigate any bilious vomiting in the moment. Mm. Okay, so Gordon, the next big, big topic I'd like to discuss with you is the care of the baby with congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Now, the majority of these are now diagnosed antenatally and of those that remain undiagnosed, they are now actually not too distressed in retrieval as we know, those that are missed on the fetal anomaly scan actually are, the, are those where the lesion is not so large and it has happened quite late in pregnancy. So from a neonatal point of view, I know um, it's important to diagnose the problem early, and I'm sure most listeners know that, um, so that the gut is not overinflated with air, so we always intubate them early. If diagnosed antenatally, we intubate the babies at birth and place a gastric tube quite quickly. Uh, and in 2020, our intensive care now involves much more gentle ventilation than previous years. Um, we use targeted and physiologically based vasodilatation and inotropy, if necessary. And we use much less muscle relaxation so as to not cause lung injury whilst the pulmonary pressures drop postnatally. And with the degree to which there's pulmonary hypoplasia and pulmonary hypertension, we, some, we support them with um, allowing much more permissive hypercapnia and tolerate lower oxygen saturations than we did in the past to prevent oxygen-free radicals and to enhance the effect of our inhaled nitric oxide. So what can you tell us about why babies get CD congenital diaphragmatic hernia? What is the current survival for congenital ba babies with congenital diaphragmatic hernia? And what has changed in how we're managing the surgical repairs of these babies in 2020? So thanks, Kat. So to understand the embryology of uh, how diaphragmatic hernia occurs, the diaphragm actually comes together from different components, much like the patchwork of a quilt. Hmm. In simple terms, it's failure of fusion of these components that cause the diaphragmatic hernia. And so if you look at the develop, developing fetus, the abdominal and thoracic cavities is actually one continuous cavity called the pleuroperitoneal canal, uh, which closes when the diaphragm forms. Most often, the most common defect that we see is on the left side, posterolateral aspect, and that's called the 
blocked the Vedhanya. Sometimes you have babies that are born with no diaphragm at all. So in terms of, to answer your question about survival, you can look at it from different angles. And it's probably best if you look at those who are already born, who make it to birth, and exclude those who don't survive in utero or are terminated for various reasons. So let's look at those who make it to birth. So for those who make it to birth, around generally around 20% are so sick that they will never make it to surgery. You know, and it could be because of the severity of pulmonary hypertension. It could be because of uh, the severity of pulmonary hyperplasia, extreme prematurity, or other major comorbid factors that preclude surgical intervention. So this figure actually varies significantly among different groups, and there are several studies out there which show that. And But in our service, it's about 16%. So 16% of them die before we get to surgery. Mm. And for the same reasons that I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> but for those who do have surgery, uh, here at the Children's Hospital Breast Mira, survival is a little over 8 90%, which I think is a remarkable result. Yes, we're very proud of that, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, it is. So the question is, what's made the difference? And, you know, I think what really has made the difference and what's changed is the neonatal intensivists and how they manage the lung and the physiology. The gentle ventilation, the prevention of lung injury, permissive hypercapnia, these are the strategies, I think, that have been the big game changers. And as far as surgeons are concerned, we are, you know, a very small piece in the whole story, we just close a little hole. And so I'm always very impressed with how delicately and cleverly you all manage this with your medical strategies, uh, as that's really the vital uh, bit that's, uh, that makes a difference. Mm, so, I mean, thanks, thanks for that. Um, but I guess part of it is that probably what we're doing differently in the last decade or so is that we're delaying surgery until that pulmonary circulation has really settled down. Yes, Isn't it? Yeah. and I drew a really nice cartoon for you. Remember, I gave a talk uh, where <laughs> the little surgeon was hiding behind Rob Halliday's big hand and saying, wait till your turn comes. So I'll show that yes. to you at some stage. Yes, that would okay. be great. The other thing, of course, is the issue of the use of ECMO. Yes. So there are ECMO units and there are non-ECMO units. So those who believe in using it and those like us who do not use it. So it's not that we here at the Kids Hospital at Breastmead don't have access to it. In fact, ECMO happens on a daily basis in our pediatric cardiac service. Uh, it's just that our philosophy has been that we've never felt that it made a difference significant enough to justify the complications associated with its use, and those complications are especially neurological. Mm. So when you benchmark our results with ECMO using units, the survival is the same, or perhaps even better. And I get, and I sense the morbidity is much lower. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I'll just jump in there. I think we do, we, we always know that we have ECMO um, in our back pocket if we, if we need it. And we do assess babies occasionally for ECMO. Um, but we've, we've never launched along that pathway as a management strategy. And we do seem to have um, really good neurodevelopmental outcomes for our babies that survive um, surgery with congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Um, I think what our clinic here has shown is that um, at 12 months of age, the babies do have some sort of, some receptive language challenges. 
Um, but by the time they're three, those challenges seem to have resolved. So we are getting really good neurodevelopmental outcomes from the strategies that we have in place at the moment. So we wouldn't want to um, impact that by embarking on an ECMO strategy. But what about what about the preventative strategies that are available? Um, can you describe what the surgeons are trialling antenatally and how successful has that been? Before before we get to that, Kat, I just want yes. to make a little comment about the ECMO use. Yes, sure. I know we've had these children who would otherwise have qualified for ECMO in several yes. units, and we've had those discussions, and then we've chosen not to go down yes. with ECMO. And I've seen them come out of the other end actually doing quite well without ECMO. So... Look, I'm. I. That's how I feel. Yeah, and each time that happens, it encourages us yes, not to use yes, it, doesn't yes. it? Yeah. So to answer your question about you know prevention of yes. uh, diaphragmatic hernia, so really the the only thing that has shown some benefit is a strategy called tracheal occlusion that uh, happens in utero. So it's done by the maternal fetal medicine specialists, and in Australia there's a Brisbane group that does it, but it's only a very select. A number of um, uh, babies that would actually qualify for it. You know. There is a, a, there are mixed results, yeah. but um, I'll tell you how it works. So basically, these really clever people put in a fetoscope, uh, go in through the abdomen of the mother, into the u- uterus, uh, and actually intubate the trachea. Yes. And uh, put a little plug. They have to put it exactly in the right place in the trachea. And what this happens is it's called the plug procedure. So plug the lung till it grows. And um, when you plug the lung, plug the trachea or occlude the trachea, um, the buildup of fluid distal to it is is what is thought to um, encourage growth. So these babies who actually um, make it alive uh, following uh, delivery um, have less pulmonary hyperplasia and pulmonary hypertension so it is whilst the lungs are still in the secretory phase of their development before breathing movements have become established. And this is really only for a very select few cases, isn't it? And and we also know that this strategy has had very mixed results. So I've left the topic closest to your heart to the very end, transplant surgery. So excluding babies who have joined a secondary to the prolonged use of TPN in the nursery, Let's firstly talk about babies who are persistently jaundiced after two weeks with a conjugated hyperbilirubin. What should we all know about these babies and what is important about conjugated bilirubin that you need to hear about from your physician colleagues? These babies become yellow probably just after they leave the nursery. Mm. Uh, But uh, whenever we have a little baby with conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, we always worry about bilirubinemia. Um, and this is almost always associated with pale color stools. Now, here's the thing. Recognizing pale stools can be quite subjective, both to parents and clinicians, and they both miss it. They have pediatricians also miss hmm. uh, pale colored stools. So in countries like Taiwan, where there is a high incidence of atresia, they actually have stool color charts that have been rolled out as a public health initiative, much like in the Blue Book. So if the stool is paler than the expected color of the book, then it needs to be investigated. Uh, and the parents can pick that up. So what's happened is they picked up bilirubin early and um, done the only surgery that has any 
chance of success at an earlier age. The thing is that if you do this procedure called the Kasai, the earlier you do it, the slightly better chance of it being successful. And what does the Kasai involve? What the Kasai, kasai involves is um, taking the fibrotic gallbladder and the remnants of this fibrotic biliary tract and shaving it off at the hilum of the liver. That means just where the where they're emerging from the liver. Mm. And that's called the ductal plate. Uh, and what we assume that happens is when you cut it off there, tiny little ductules that might still be open will drain. And that drainage switches off for some reason this obliterative process that happens in the little atresia. Now, it's about successful in about 50% of the time. So it's like you, you shave off all the blocked tubules and then you put like a sump onto yeah, yeah. it and it drains into the large, small intestine. Yes, yeah, so you take a loop of bowel, small intestine, you isolate a loop of bowel and yeah. bring it and just, you know, uh, attach it there so that the whatever drains, bile, drains into the intestine. Having said that, all children with bilirubinemia, about 80% of them will eventually need an only 80%? What happens to the other 20%? Do they survive so the, with a Kasai? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So about 20% will survive without a Kasai with their native livers. Yes, yeah, so I have met one of our nursing staff actually who have a Kasai. Oh, really? Without we, a transplant? We do, without a transplant, Wonderful. yes. So the other question you asked about was transplant. Mm. So transplants have come a long way. Uh, we started our program here in 1987, Albert Shul started it. Um, <clears throat> survivals have improved incrementally every decade, and mm -hmm. they're really good now. Uh, in fact, um, many of our children that were transplanted in the late 80s, early 90s, are now adults and have their own families and their own children themselves. So I think they have a reasonably good quality of life. Mm. Um, and it's a sort of, so we, it's, it's a hopeful message for these children with Bolivia trees. Mm, fantastic. Um, so in the neonatal nursery, we often have babies with loss of gut. For example, as we discussed above, post-volvulus from malrotation. So can you talk a little bit about that? Can we can we do small bowel transplants in these babies? Are, are they successful? So yes, Kat, we often see babies who lose varying amounts of gut due to several reasons. NEC, volvulus, malatresia. Um, and things like that. So managing these children can be tricky, and some of them will go on to need long-term TPM. So for those who have reasonable amounts of intestine left, left say at least about 40 centimeters of small bowel, I suppose, um, so strategies for intestine rehabilitation have come a long way, and enteral autonomy, what we say enteral autonomy means that you don't need TPM, uh, now with um, you know smaller and smaller lengths of residual gut is now possible uh, in centers that have you know comprehensive intestinal rehabilitation programs and that have the expertise in managing these children and this is a this is a this is something that we are seeing across the different um, uh, centers around the world they have uh, intestinal rehabilitation teams. Mm -hmm. So what we are seeing is that even children with ultra-short segments of gut, less than 20 centimeters, uh, are now able to achieve enteral autonomy 
mostly through surgical procedures, dietary management, medications, and a host of other interventions that um, that that has helped them. So the number of small bowel transplants uh, has actually come down significantly because you know the medical management and the intestinal rehabilitation strategies have become so much better. So you mentioned part of the intestinal rehabilitation is is surgery. Um, what sort of surgery can you do to rehabilitate one's own ultra short gut? So I can give you a one hour lecture on it, but it's, <laughs> it is it is essentially you know you have to optimize the gut for absorption. Yeah, and there are lots of physiological disruptions that happen. Uh, with these children that need to be corrected so that the villi, uh, all the villi have, have, are involved in absorption. Mm. There, there are no blind loops, there's no bacterial overgrowth, um, and um, uh, we can lengthen or optimize through bowel lengthening, surgical bowel lengthening procedures. And there are a couple of bowel lengthening procedures, one of which has been um, pioneered here at the Kids Hospital Westmead. Hmm. So we've, we've been very happy with that. Um, and can you explain how, how you might lengthen someone's bowel via a surgical procedure? Is that hard to explain? It's it's actually length, length, lengthening is probably um, is, is, is a misrepresentation of what we actually do. We're not actually lengthening. Yeah. We are just reducing the caliber um, through so that the, you know, the when food or food bolus transits through, yep. every bit of it has the opportunity to... It's available for absorption. Absorption, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. All right, so you're sort of optimising absolutely everything that you've got. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. All right. So the other question that you asked is about um, those with malnutrition and malnutrition that lose almost all their intestine. That's a very difficult situation, and... Um, you know, if they have no meaningful small bowel left uh, and the possibility of intestinal rehabilitation is minimal to none, it leaves the family with a really terrible situation. And honestly, I don't have a good answer on what should be done. So we often leave the decision to the family. Some families choose to palliate and some choose lifelong TPN with the uh, possibility of a small bowel transplant down the road. Now, here's the thing. You know, if you start TPN on a very small baby in neonate, it is it is a big deal because you know that's what they're dependent on. Mm. Um, they need to be in a close to a major facility where all those issues can be looked after. And uh, eventually, what happens with TPN is it poisons the liver, and they get liver failure as well. Mm. And so eventually, what happens is you would need to most often do a combined small bowel and, and uh, a liver transplant together. So why do you have to wait on the TPN? Why can't you do it when the, yeah. shortly after it happens? So that's because the results of small bowel transplants are not very good. So if you look at uh, other transplants like livers and kidneys, mm. the results have gotten better over the years. But small bowel transplants have been the same for decades. So if you look at uh, survival, five-year patient survival is now still only about 58%. Mm. And uh, five-year graft survival is you get an instant transplant, it's only about still about 50%. Now, individual centers have shown better results, but it is a long and arduous journey, and it's not quite as simple as it seems, you know, because 
Uh, the gut is a very immunological organ. There are organisms in it. You know, mm. it's, it's it's contact with the outside. Yeah. Uh, you're immunosuppressing them. They can get septic very quickly, and there there are a host of other things that happen. So it's not some of them do really well, but um, mm. but these are the stats. So the number of small bowel transplants around the world have actually dropped. There's a lot of enthusiasm about it. Now I think the big push has been in the sense rehabilitation. Mm. Um, yeah. So you're not waiting for a certain weight for the baby to, or, or are you? Why why are we spending time on the TPN? You know, if, if parents um, want to aggressively go for a small bowel transplant, why do we have to wait? So the the reason we keep them on TPN is actually because their quality of life is better on TPN than in small bowel transplant. So in general, right? You know, that's uh, and especially if they're little. So the um, with TPN they actually, as you know, actually quite well. They can go to school. They're not immunosuppressed. They're not getting infections. If you look at the lines, mm. um, you know, look, look after the lines well, and they have a certain rhythm that they get used to. Uh, with the small bowel transplant, um, there are there's a lot of other things. They're heavily immunosuppressed. They're in and out. There can be issues with stomal output. They can be. I did two years of it in Miami, but that was many years ago. Mm. Things have changed a little bit, um, but I, I think still it's not such a promising therapy like the liver transplant. So it's like giving the parent two options. One is a lifestyle with TPN, which is a better lifestyle than a lifestyle with small bowel transplant, which is a much riskier well, proposition. I think the guidelines are very clear about when we offer trans uh, small bowel transplant. Right. We don't we don't give the option to the parents right away. Right. So because the outcomes are poor, and because it's so involved and uh, uh, and associated with so many problems, um, we will only offer on certain conditions. That is, if the liver also has failed, mm. or they have lost all venous axis, or they're having significant issues with fluid loss or things like that that, that they can't keep and it's a threat to life. So right. it is it is actually uh, therapy right at the end when everything else has failed. You understand that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Gordon, we occasionally have babies in the nursery with bilateral cystic kidneys or severe urethral valves with loss of renal tissue. But when we, but we really recommend dialysis or transplant for these babies. So how big does the baby need to be to be successfully transplanted? Well, Kath, yes, we, we generally like the babies to be at least 10 kilos before we transplant um, with a kidney because it's usually an adult kidney with a child's needs or adult kidney that's available because it's often from a parent and the child needs to be big enough for the kidney to fit into the abdomen mm. and also to have sufficient cardiac output to perfuse the organ. So if you look at a 10 kilo child that's a canal kidney, it actually almost takes a whole space. So you can imagine the amount of extra blood that the poor kid's heart would have to pump to perfuse that kidney. So so, um, um, so we wait for 10 kilos at least, but we have made exceptions. We've had one, the youngest child was six kilos, um, and we were fortunate enough to get a very small kidney for that child. And that worked really well. Mm. Um, the children who need dialysis from from the neonatal period, they are a very difficult group because um, dialysis is not benign in mm. this group of children. And 
many of them have, um, you know, I think the morphologists will be able to tell you more about it, but it's, 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 it's a difficult group. Yeah, yeah sure. So um, great news for babies and families, though, when you are able to get them to transplant. Um, but what about neonates as donors of livers and kidneys? How successful has that been? So yes, uh, actually neonates as donors has been very successful. It's um, uh, we can use donor livers, neonatal livers, and we can use uh, neonatal kidneys. The issue is that you know neonates don't often have brain depth, mm. so to certify brain depth becomes a little harder. So there are lots of neonates that um, that are potentially um, what do you call it uh, donors, mm. but when you withdraw care. They don't die within the time frames for us to use, uh, uh, and they and, and to certify brain death is always an issue. But mm. we've used we've used four neonatal livers, and they've all worked very well in our children. Mm. Uh, neonatal kidneys are taken en bloc. That means both kidneys are taken together uh, with the aorta, uh, you know, intact. Uh, and they are often given to, most often given to adults. Mm. At the moment, we haven't transplanted them into children, and that's a whole different discussion. Mm. But uh, neonatal and pediatric kidneys usually go to adults. Yeah, so you use both kidneys, and they're um, attached on block to the adult in one side of the adult. Yeah. And two little baby kidneys is enough to... Um, it, it, it takes a little while to work, but it's remarkable how that kidney will grow. Yeah. And, yeah, the results are reasonably good, so good enough for us to actually continue doing them. Yeah, okay. And so neonatal um, donation is usually donation after cardiac death, and so um, the kidneys aren't being perfused very well prior to the death, are they? So that, is there a time frame yeah. where, the, where once you've... Um, um, or redirected your intensive care to palliation. Is there a time frame? What, what, yes. Do you know? Yes, yes, and that's called warm ischemia time. Yeah. So, because neonates, you can you can donate uh, with with brain death alone and not cardiac death. We mm. can sense it, but uh, but we just don't see it because their fontanelles yeah, are yeah, still yeah. malleable. And those are that's really good. But uh, uh, donation after cardiac death, they have to if you want to use the kidney. Uh, once the heart stops, uh, you have to be able to, or once you withdraw care, you have to be able to uh, take the kidneys out and perfuse it within 60 minutes. Yeah. So, so it makes it difficult. It makes it a bit yeah. Difficult. And with the neonatal livers, do you put them into a similar sized child or could they go into an adult as well? No, they're, they're too small for an adult. So we all need a certain mass yeah. of liver. To sustain metabolic function in yeah. each of us, so it's about two percent of our body weight. Or our, you know, right. if you want to really be careful about one percent of body weight. The neonatal liver will go into either a small child or baby, yeah. um, but definitely not in an adult. Right. Okay. So we could probably talk about transplant and surgery for much longer, but I, I think we'll have to save some topics for another time. So, Gordon, before we finish, I have a couple of questions <clears throat> I ask everyone. Firstly, where would you like to see pediatric? surgical research go to how can we improve things for babies and their families Kat that's such a broad question <laughs> I don't know where to start yeah. okay so but in terms of surgery I'd say minimally invasive surgery will continue to evolve and miniaturization instrument is still an area that's relevant to us 
uh, especially as we like to do robotic surgery in very small children and also neonates. At the moment, it's all very big mm. and we can't do it. Um, and I think as instruments become smaller and smaller and smaller, cameras become more um, uh, tinier, uh, we'll be able to do things mainly amazingly better uh, in neonates. Uh, I think some other focus areas will be regenerative medicine. And, uh, that's, that's a big thing. Tracheas, esophagus, small bile, mm. kidneys, various things like that. Skin, uh, gene therapies, biomaterials, uh, use of biomaterials for children. Uh, and I, I think big data, AI will come in, you know, it will inform what we should do. Um, and we need to have, uh, you know, very robust uh, on the um, uh, point, robust sort of uh, ongoing data collection that happens seamlessly without, uh, you know, through through chart, for instance, mm. uh, gut microbiome. So these are some of the areas I think that will uh, that uh, research will uh, progress into. Mm. And uh, to answer your question about what we can do things, uh, what we can do to make things better, I think there are several things. Uh, we've moved from gross mortality to quality of life, so we're trying to reduce morbidity. Uh, we want to make errors, minimize error completely, reduce hospitalization, ensure no child gets less than optimal care, empower families to look after their own children. We also need to have the technology to be able to treat conditions better, more scientifically, less empirically, etc. Mm. And I think one of the big things that has changed is teamwork. So our teamwork, uh, working together as teams, collaborative teams, uh, is uh, has been one of the biggest things in terms of uh, improving outcomes. Mm. Yeah, I think teamwork's critical um, mm. to all of us improving how we care for our children. So, wow, there's some big visions there. So lots for our junior listeners to um, consider if they're wanting to do some surgical research. So secondly, um, can I ask you how you think gender, um, you're obviously a man, um, but has it affected your career and your family life? And do you think there's more we could be doing better in that regard? So, Kath, yes, I'm very aware of the fact that in pediatrics I'm a minority, a big minority. <laughs> it's a very female-dominated <laughs> sphere. But um, I'd like to think that I'm gender-blind. Um, I think each of us have our own strengths and we just need to recognize what our strengths are. And I think we just need to be given the opportunities for us to be effective in the areas that we are most likely to be effective because, you know, we all are very different. Uh, as a society, you know, I've, uh, you know uh, now Australia is my country of adoption. Uh, I think um, we, Australia is very aware of gender equality. And I think one of the reasons that we are a great civil society that we are is because women are well, that's excellent. I, I don't know what the listeners think, but I love that answer. Thanks, Gordon. So it's always a pleasure to work with you. You are always patient and kind, and you are always close by the nursery when I need you, um, day and night. And thank you so much for the work that you do every day to make the lives of babies and children better. And thanks for having a neonatal conversation with me today. Thank you, Kat. Always a pleasure. If you have enjoyed this podcast or have questions, please head to the webpage www.neonatalconversations.com where there are links to the references used in this podcast and where we might be able to continue the discussion. You can also leave feedback or commentary on Facebook, 
Neonatal Conversations, or on Twitter at NeoConversation. We would really appreciate any feedback you might have. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you all for caring for the critically ill newborn. Thank you.